Welcome to Uncontained, episode 86. I'm your host, Aaron Static Render. Before we get started with the show this week, I would like to send my condolences to everybody who lost somebody in that, and my best wishes to those who are currently recovering from that tragedy. To move on to something more exciting, this week I talked to Eddie Bauer, a composer, producer and sound engineer and he has some exciting stuff coming up that we talk about including working on the upcoming Dragon Ball Z movie as a composer so we'll, we'll get into that in the conversation I don't want to give away too much right now but before we jump into the interview with Eddie Bauer I have a sneak peek at the opening theme of Dragon Ball Z Light of Hope right here on Uncontained. How are you doing today, Eddie? Hey, what's up, Static? How's it going, man? Good to be here. I'm doing good. Thank you for joining me. How have you been? Actually, been not too bad. You know, um, a lot of things have started to develop within recent months. You know, the industry is always up and down. You know, it's kind of like a huge roller coaster. So you just got to ride the wave sometimes. And, you know, right now I'm on the up. So things are looking pretty good. That's a good place on the wave to be, man. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) All right. So you got started out kind of in a similar way to me, I guess. You started out in radio? That's correct. First of all, I've been in the industry since 1999. My first gig was in this little top 40 radio station in Mobile, Alabama, WABB, which is no longer those call letters, but it was owned by the late Bernie Dittman, who also introduced Rick Dees to the radio business. And it was an administrative job. Basically, I was handling contracts for uh, various companies to get placed on air. So when, you know, somebody like you were to do a commercial break, you just load in one of the carts and voila, a spot would pop up for you to get your advertisement. And I was handling that for about two, two and a half years or so. And that's how I kind of got it started in the business. Okay, so you were on the traffic side of things. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it was pretty cool. It wasn't bad. Yeah, and like even working for a radio station, at least my experience of it is pretty pretty laid back and kind of a chill environment to work in. Did you ever get behind the mic? Actually, the funny thing was the AM side of the uh, of the radio station wanted to get more into not necessarily the political shows that they had on air. They wanted to get more into a little bit of entertainment and in some cases into sports. So they came up with this idea to simulcast a 
talk show out of Birmingham. I think it was in Birmingham, Alabama, called the Rick and Bubba Show. I would never forget it. Okay. It was uh, it was a two in the morning to six in the morning television show. Weird time spot, but it actually got my opportunity to do an interview because you know we was a new syndicated station, and of course they wanted to get to know the producer in there. So I actually got behind the board. I actually started learning how to create radio spots to broadcast, to promote the show. That didn't last very long, but it actually got me the experience and it helped me scratch the itch that I needed in order to say, you know what, I think I can do something like this on a bigger scale. So yeah, it, it was brief, but it was fun. Is that what got you into becoming a music producer? I think so. And especially learning the um, the engineering side more so than anything. That's what that gig got to me. Learning how to uh, do sound design, uh, learning how to create a commercial, 30 second commercial that needed to have an impact in certain areas of the commercial, how to take different reels or different clips from different parts of the show and combine them together to create a spot. So I think for me, it was more getting into the engineering and production side as far as sound design. I've always been a musician at heart. I've been playing piano since I was 10 years old. I've been singing since I was seven, even though I don't sing anymore. But I think that aspect being in radio got me more into the the discipline side, I like to say, of the industry, which is the engineering, the sound design, the post-production side of the business. And uh, that was fun. So once you did get in on the production side of the music industry, who did you work with? Well, keep in mind, once I got into the production side, I was still in a little small town that only had 500,000 people. So wasn't a whole lot of production that could be done down there. But uh, <laughs> funny thing that happened, how I got into production, actually, is right around 2000 and I'd say 2002, um, WABB no longer need my services and I was laid off. But one of the DJs who I've worked with, his name is uh, Derek Long. He goes by Kane and shout out to Kane back in Mobile, Alabama. What's up, dude? Um, he longtime friend of mine. He was a uh, a DJ for years at WABB, and he listened to some of my work. And he listened to um, a song that I did with a 15 year old kid at the time by the name of Jason Bennett, aka Ace. Okay. And this was around the time that Dr. Dre and Eminem kind of solidified themselves as the new Batman and Robin in the industry. This was the time when Eight Mile Yeah, this was the time that Eight Mile came out. This was the time that Marshall Mathers and some Slim Shady EPs came out. And, you know, not trying to get into any racial bias, but you're talking about a 15-year-old white kid in a southern town that raps. I think I can capitalize on that if I give him the right product and that was kind of the dynamic that we had. So when I let my friend Kane listen to one of the songs that I did, he was like, wow, dude, this is this is amazing stuff. Let me see if I can get it to where you can actually perform it 
at one of our events. Okay. Now, it, in Mobile, they have Mardi Gras, of course, uh, and they also had this uh, yearly uh, kind of like festival called Bayfest. It's kind of like Oktoberfest, okay. where they have a, a whole lot of various groups. Mostly the groups were R&B, soul, jazz, blues-based groups, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, Sugar Ray, you know, the Gap Band, a lot of older groups, They're not really catering to, at that time I was maybe in my late 20s, going to my early 30s, not really catering to that crowd. Yeah. Uh, you would have had to go to Atlanta, maybe south to Miami, or even to New Orleans where cash money was really kind of taking hold, uh, no limit at the same time. You would have had to go to one of those cities to really kind of get a grasp on hip-hop. So to hear hip hop come from specifically that area of Mobile and especially coming from white kid, it was, you know, kind of almost refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, well, let me get it to one of my guys who are sponsoring the event and let me see if I can get you, you know, a spot in the event. Now, had no idea who the lineup was going to be. We were just, you know, keeping our fingers crossed like, wow, this is a good opportunity to showcase our material. So long story short, fast forward, I'd say about six months to maybe nine months after that. So now we're in 2003. Okay. I get a call from Kane and he mentions that, number one, we got the gig. Number two, he was able to get an interview with the local newspaper, which is the Mobile Register and my friend Lawrence Specker, who now works with... Uh, AL.com, which is the Atlanta-based uh, internet newspaper, got us an interview with him. So we got both front page and the front of the local page. And the lineup included Ludacris, which was the first time that a hip-hop artist ever performed at Bayfest. Really? Yeah. And when I told him that, he like went ballistic. He couldn't believe it, that all of this happened with no budget, with no financing. It was really just word of mouth and making the right connections to kind of get this steam rolling a little bit. Once that took place, I think for me, I knew that my place in the industry can be established now if I just continue to build off of that. Yeah, just curious, man. What was a 15-year-old white kid in Mobile rapping about? What was his content? <laughs> <laughs> think uh eminem with a little southern twang to it <laughs> like uh kind of like bubba sparks first of all mobile is like i said a very small town so pretty much everybody knows everybody and unfortunately there's a lot of the violent undertones of being in a southern city especially amongst communities that feel they've been oppressed for yeah. decades and he felt he was part of that, hanging around guys like us, of course. And that was the kind of the content he was taking on. So he wasn't your traditional. And I'm glad you mentioned Bubba because he was out during that time as well. And one of the things I was trying to do is I was not trying to give him that kind of stigma, you know, okay. a Southern rapper with that kind of. You know, almost like a joyous type of, you know, non-care attitude. Not to say that Bubba didn't have bars, but my dude had bars that the homies can relate to. And I think that made him more 
uh, appealing when it when the opportunity presented itself to open up for Ludacris. Yeah, it's about like relating to the audience. I think uh, you know. Like Bubba Sparks did the two capital R's pretty much in like their were her their like type southern southern rap stuff and exactly pretty much portraying himself as like a dirty redneck rapper in a way or is yeah. that is that overstepping yeah, yeah. or <laughs> I, I don't want, you know I don't think that's overstepping at all I you know country boy yeah you know just just uh, I don't want to call him hick but that's that's kind of the element that he had. Now, of course, he had uh, Timberland behind him, who's, you know, one of my idols. And the funny thing about Timberland, this way uh, gets into my name. Good friend of mine, she, you know, heard my production. She was like, you know, you need to come up with a, with a production name or a producer name for yourself. You can't just call yourself Ed, you know, that, that's bland. <laughs> I'm Ed the producer, guys. Yeah, Ed the producer dude. You know, you can't do that. So why don't you come up with a catchy name? I'm like, well, what what do you suggest? And she mentioned Timberland. And Timberland spells his name differently than the actual actual Timberland boots. Okay. He spells it Timberland, as in T-I-M-B-A-L-A-N-D. I don't know if a lot of people catch on to that, but that, number one keeps him from getting sued by the Timberland shoe company. Yes. Number, one. number two, it gives this kind of swag to the name that associates with the production style that he came up with. So she was mentioning, well, why don't you call yourself Eddie Bauer? I'm like, like the Explorer truck. <laughs> she, she was like, yeah, but spell it differently. And that's how I came up with B-O-W-E-R as opposed to B-A-U-E-R. Yeah. And it just kind of stuck with me. And I've been known as Eddie Bauer ever since. So you got that off of Timberland. You know, Timberland is one of my big influences. And, you know, I think that was a, a, a kind of a vote of respect for me to do something like that. And that also kind of let me know that if people were to associate my name like that, then I have to bring it as far as my production quality. And that kind of put the emphasis on try to become a better producer, not just a better musician. So, um, okay. yeah, I think that was a turning point in my career where I just really took production seriously. Awesome, man. And this question really has nothing to do with production, but it does have something to do with Timberland. Whatever happened to Magoo? <laughs> I think he's retired off of Timberland's money. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Like Timberland and Magoo, then all of a sudden it's just Timberland. <laughs> yeah, now it, it's kind of the same thing that happened with the uh, the Neptunes. It was Pharrell, Chad, yep. and that other guy. Now is just basically Pharrell. You don't hear him too much of Chad or anybody else. And that's not to say they didn't carry their own weight. It's just. The music industry is funny. It's, you know, the, the whole image thing plays a big part on who gets, you know, the kind of the glamour and the glitz that everybody expects, especially when you're in a group. That's why so many groups break up and become solos. Yeah. Um, think about all the various groups in the past from New Edition to 
the Backstreet Boys to be uh, the, the Destiny's Child. Yeah, uh, a lot of those groups disbanded simply because one was getting quote unquote more shine than everybody else. Yeah. Now you've moved kind of away from doing some production towards the engineering and teaching realm of things. Yes. Uh, so after we did the the show for Ludacris, which by the way uh, had one of the biggest turnouts in Bayfest history, I think it was around thirty thousand people that showed up downtown in Mobile for that event. Uh, and of course, they came to see Ludacris. I think it, it was one of the bigger Bayfests they had, you know. But after that, you know, like I said, I really wanted to take my production to the next level, and I knew the city of Mobile wasn't going to offer that. And I only had one real choice where I wanted to go, and it wasn't Atlanta. I had to come back to my roots. I'm originally born in Compton. Okay. I like to say I was, I like to say I'm born in Compton, raised in Mobile, Alabama. Those are my two homes, but Compton will always be for, will forever be the home of homes for me. So I had to come back home. How old were you when you moved away from uh, Compton? Uh, I was 10 years old when I moved away from Compton. Um, my dad, bless his heart, you know, he's, you know, 72 and still kicking around. Uh, he told awesome. me this a long time ago that one of the reasons that he moved me away from Compton at that age was to get me away from what was eventually becoming a very turbulent time in the late 80s and early 90s for any black male living in Los Angeles. And he did not want me to become a statistic. And I totally see the, you know, some of my friends, some of my homies, you know, my family members who had friends who, you know, passed away because of the violence or the, the persecution and, and a whole lot, you know, the LA riots happened in 91. Yeah. So a lot of the, yeah, the, a lot of the stuff that was, dark and dismal during that time he wanted me away from it and i think that forever changed my life as far as my approach to how to live it was being away from that environment who knows what would have happened had i stay here and actually try to go to you know middle school and high school out here i i, I don't know where my life would have turned up so i am forever grateful for my dad for getting me out of here yeah. He did. Yeah, definitely. How big of a change was that moving from Compton to Mobile? Uh, literally it was night and day, especially with my great-grandmother who was the type of person who got up at 5:30 in the morning, cooked breakfast, went out and picked her own, you know, peas and greens and vegetables in her own garden and she's out <laughs> on the porch shucking peas and you know giving me a bucket and like you make make sure you shut those peas there you know <laughs> she's on the front porch with the fly swatter all the time swatting flies you know you're talking about 90 degrees with 90 percent humidity oh, yeah, yeah. but you know she's the type of person as soon as the street lights come on you're going to bed forget you forget coming in the house you're going to bed <laughs> <laughs> so that was the biggest change from living out here to living out there in Mobile, especially as, you know, teenager becoming an adolescent down there. But I think the slowdown 
was pretty significant and for me getting, you know, being able to graduate from high school and, you know, learning some of the values that a lot of my family members down there established by living in that type of environment compared to the more liberal type of environment that you get out here in the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit different. I'm originally from the Midwest myself, so I definitely see a difference out here. Kind of got us off track a little bit. Now, how did you uh, get into engineering? What made you take that leap from uh, producing to the engineering side? Well, after I returned to Compton, L.A. area, of course, me just coming off the, you know, ridiculous high that I had, you know, opening up for Ludacris, come back out here and thinking that eh, it's going to be easy pickings to come out here. Just ride that way. <laughs> not 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 the case at all. I learned very quickly that a lot of people out here are very good. It's hard to be noticeable out here because the talent pool is so convoluted to where you really got to establish yourself in a particular lane in order to get noticed. So for me, instead of being a producer, which there was a crowd of producers, I mean, you had home producers coming out of the woodworks during that time. I figured, how can I make my music sound better? Because I think that was the one thing that was killing me, even though I was producing good music. The quality as far as the sonic quality and making sure that it's translatable from system to system, you know, the things that engineers talk about in, you know, happenstance now, I didn't know anything about that during that time. And I figured in order for me to really harness my musical capabilities, I need that aspect figured out. So I decided on a whim my grandmother gave me a thousand dollars, and she was going to actually invest in me buying, uh, you know, buying a thousand CDs to try to sell of my, you know, of some of my work. And I was okay. like, you know what, Granny, let me take that thousand and actually invest it in something that makes sense. So I actually put it into getting a student loan to go out to Musicians Institute. Being out here and actually being in the LA area, I got a chance to visit their facilities and got a chance to meet. A, you know, during the open house, some of their instructors and I was basically sold from that point on that I wanted to become an engineer. Okay. Shortly after that, I think in, I want to say November, December of 2005, going into 2006, one of the benefits of going to a place like MI, which I'll talk about a little bit later, is... Uh, our internship program, where we actually send you out to professional studios, whether it be big or small, to actually get, you know, kind of your feet underneath you as far as how to be an engineer in a professional setting. So they sent me to um, an independent producer by the name of G1. Okay. Now, for those who don't know G1, he is a multi-platinum producer who's produced artists such as Snoop Dogg, Tony, 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 Raphael Sadiq, DJ Quick, uh, Shaq when he was rapping. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. I had to laugh at the Shaq. Yeah, I, I had to laugh at that too. 
Well, one of the songs that he did was on R. Kelly's R album. It was the song featuring Kate, uh, featuring Keith Murray. That album went diamond, which is 10 million copies. So he's 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 diamond. good as far as he's set. <laughs> yeah. And of course, all the work he did with Quick and Raphael Sadiq and Tony, Tony, Tony. The, the list goes on and on and on. So they sent me to him um, to have an interview. And I was hired on the spot really? as his chief. Yeah, as his chief engineer, not as his runner or his intern, which is usually what you would start off with when you're doing an internship program. I was hired as his chief, really? which means now I'm recording sessions, I'm mixing sessions, I'm actually going off the behest of him directly, and I have nobody else underneath me that I have to worry about taking my place. That right there was, first of all, a shot, because number one, I haven't really even learned Pro Tools yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember the interview very clearly. You know, he looks over my he looks over my resume. You know, he says, so do you know Pro Tools? I'm like, we're learning Pro Tools in class and blah, blah, blah. He said, OK, why don't you sit down over there? I'm going to pull up one of my sessions. And of course, it's him and Quick and, you know, all of these big time artists, Snoop and you know, uh, corrupt and, and you know, all of these artists that he's recorded. He's like, I want you to just go ahead and just, you know, show me what you got. And, you know, uh, the great Manny Mariquin, an eight-time Grammy Award-winning engineer in his own right, told me this story a couple of years ago when he first got his start. And somebody approached him and asked him, because uh, I think one of the engineers engineering the record wasn't there either he called in sick or just left but manny was the assistant the guy comes to him and says can you mix this record now of course manny doesn't know a mixer from a hole in the wall just at that time and he says sure i can do it (laughs) (laughs) and literally he was like what the did i get myself into after the guy left but of course he went on to engineer the record uh, eventually that got him more gigs. And of course, you know, eight Grammys later, he's one of the greatest engineers of all time. So I wasn't, of course, thinking of that. I was thinking, you know, if I really want to prove myself to this guy, you know, the, the, the old saying, fake it till you make it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do something like that. You know, <laughs> touch a couple of buttons, move a couple of faders, you know, trust your ears and just, you know, just kind of show them what you can do. Sure enough, he, you know, enjoyed the conversation, enjoyed the work that I was doing. After I graduated from MI, he was like, look, you can come and be my chief engineer full time. And that's how I got my foot in the industry. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So shortly after I assumed the gig, we took on a major project. This was in late 2006. Um. One of the guys who was in Training Day. The Denzel Washington movie Training Day? Yeah, Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke movie Training Day, directed by Antoine Fuqua. I love that movie. Of course, Denzel won the Oscar for that movie. But one of the guys who was in that movie, I don't know if you remember the scene or not. Uh, I'm assuming you saw the movie, right? Yeah, it's been a while. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you remember the scene where Denzel... Uh, took uh, Ethan into the jungles. 
the the projects. Yeah, yeah, I do remember yeah. that. Okay, and there was a particular scene, not where the guy was, what they was calling flipping pigeons on the top of the projects. And by the way, that was Terry Crews who was doing that. The guy from, <laughs> yeah, that was Terry Crews. It, 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 it's it's funny seeing those guys in their careers now compared to back in 2000 when this movie came out. But as he's pulling up and he was taking Ethan into his, uh, I guess it was his wife's apartment, and he screams out, one time, what's up, Bone? The guy, Bone, who was shooting dice in the front. Yeah. That's the guy that I met. And he came to G1 Studio. And here's the funny thing about G1 and his um, established uh, credentials in the industry. He gets to know a lot of people, um, including actors who I've seen in movies when I was a kid, you know, like Boys in the Hood or menace to society or tales from the hood you know i'm seeing actors from those movies and i'm like wow these guys are just normal people just like you and me so when i met bone uh first of all he's an athens park pyru which is of course if you familiar with anything associated with uh the culture out here in la it's gang activity you have bloods and crips okay he was a blood all right so you know, when I met him, of course, he was explaining, his, you know, his culture and where he grew up from. And then he was mentioning about this project he was doing called Bastards of the Party. And he was working with Antoine, Antoine Foucault, who was the director of Training Day, uh, was actually doing this documentary and it got picked up by HBO. And what he came to G1 for was to do the actual theme song for the documentary which appeared on the end so of course g1 gives me a call now i'm sitting at home chilling with my dad and my granny i get a call late at night maybe it was about eh, nine or ten o'clock on a friday night so of course i'm either in chill mode party mode or no mode <laughs> i get a call from him. so i get a call from him he's like ed i need you to come to the studio ed i need you to come to the studio it's very important i'm like are you serious like yeah yeah come on man come on come on all right so i get in my car now keep in mind i was living in compton so i'm driving all the way from compton to hollywood and i get there and of course bone was there and i'm like yeah this is something big if you got this guy sitting here so of course he spills the beans about what he's doing and G1 plays the song and, you know, we chopping it up. And then, you know, it was like, nice to meet you, whatnot. He leaves and then G1 pulls me to the side and, you know, he kind of whispers in my ear. He was like, uh, you know, you're mixing on this, right? And I just kind of looked <laughs> at him like, uh, I hope I'm mixing on this. And I'm just thinking, you know, it's probably some independent artist that's going to go on here. Little did I know the, the famous artist Dub C from West Side Connection. Oh, really? Very cool. Too. Yeah. So he recorded his verses off site. And so when I get back, you know, I'm, I'm working on uh, the other artist was named Maximo. He's the independent artist that was on there. So I'm mixing his verses and whatnot. And then I leave a couple of days later, I get back to the studio and Dub C's vocals are on there. I'm like, when did he come into the studio and what is he doing on here? He's like, this is the song, dude. I didn't tell you that Dub C was going to be on here. I wanted to keep it quiet specifically for a reason. 
to see if you was going to actually give it the same effort. Yeah. Yeah. See, he was very calculated like that. And it, 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 that was a good and a bad thing with G1, but it actually turned out to be a good thing because he was right on point. Had I known that Dubsy was going to be on there, maybe, yeah, I would have gave it maximum effort, but that's only because of the artist that was on there. He wanted to kind of show me that no matter who's on there, you give it 100%. So because I was able to like really focus on Maximo so much because I constantly had him in the studio, when Dub C's verse was eventually put on the record, it was easy pickings for me. Yeah. You know, I kind of took the same approach. And, you know, that kind of sticks with me today that I treat every artist as if there are A-list artists, regardless if you have an A-list budget. That That's a good philosophy right there, I see. And, you know, it's like you can't just phone something in because you never you never know who's going to hear it. And if it, if it sounds like you phoned it in and somebody big hears it, somebody could, could be important, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I heard, I heard Eddie Bauer's mix. It wasn't all that. But if you put the 100% in on everything, you don't have to worry about that. Exactly. And that's the way I kind of took it. And yeah, I knew it was going to be placed on HBO, but I didn't know what kind of real budgeting was being put into this. And once I finished mixing the record, um, I get a call later on that morning. Like, okay, Ed, I love the way you mix the record. Let, let's take it out to mastering. I'm like, are you serious? You want to take it out to mastering? Yeah, I'm going to have you drop it off to the mastering house. So again, driving from Compton out to Hollywood, I get the reel. He takes me out to this mastering house, uh, Burning Grumman Mastering House, which is world-renowned for mastering Michael Jackson. He mastered the Eagles, the Beatles. Uh, he's mastered over 70 million records. Wow. This guy is amazing. And I'm literally taking something that I use my ears to mix and having one of the best engineers and the best master houses in the world master my record. So I'm now starting to see the importance of how this industry works. And eventually, in March 2007, um, Bastards of the Party premieres on HBO. It premieres to, I think it was 7 million viewers that day. And I can remember vividly me and my, uh, my girlfriend, now wife, Jasmine, was sitting and we was watching the documentary. And it's an interesting documentary going into the, again, the culture of L.A. gang activity and L.A. gang lifestyle. And But you're getting it from a perspective of a former gang member okay. turned activist, now turned actor. And, he, he, and of course, Antoine Fuqua, if you know his movies from Training Day to The Replacement Killers to... Uh, Brooklyn's Finest to those movies you kind of see his dark undertone and how he likes to present a film so it's I mean it's a documentary but it was more like a film okay so of course for sure we get to the end and the song starts playing and I'm listening to my mix I'm like wow I wonder does anybody know that I worked on that and I'm just (laughs) watching it I'm like okay and the credits keep popping up credits keep popping up credits keep popping up and I'm wondering where the hell is my name? And finally, I'll, I'll never forget this. This is when DVR first kind of came out. Okay. My name popped up. The, the, the song's credits popped up. So, of course, the name of the song and the artist, they're in big font. G1 being the producer, he's in relatively big font. 
And of course, me being the engineer, I'm in very, very small font. I saw it. So I immediately paused the TV and I was like, babe, 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 look, look, that's my name. I'm like, where the hell is it? I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold it. And so I quickly rewind it. I'm like, there it is. Like, I still don't see it. Go up to the TV. There it is. And so she literally got, what, it, six inches to a foot away from the TV and finally saw my name. Uh, <laughs> So right then and there, I knew, yeah, I'm in the industry now. I got credit. So, And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how big the name is on the screen, as long as you get the credit for it. Yeah. So that right there, uh, that right there set the mark and the bar for everything else that I have been trying to do since that time. Also during that time, I eventually got a job working at MI in January of that year. So... Between January 2007 and I say April of 2007 was some of the biggest moments that I had in my engineering profession, per se, uh, where I actually got notarized and established to kind of put a foothold into being one of one of the guys that you can trust in the industry out here. I think that was a big turning point in my career. Awesome, man. So that had to be quite the wild ride coming uh, from Mobile, getting into uh, engineering and then working with some of the some of the biggest names in the business and then bringing it full circle into teaching at the place where you learned engineering. Exactly. And when I got the call to actually be an instructor, I turned it down once because the workload was just so tremendous and I really couldn't see myself teaching full-time and working as an engineer full-time. It was just been too much. But Monica, who was my boss at the time, Monica Mencius, she actually called me again. And, you know, I always feel like things happen for a reason. You know, things happen in happenstance, but Hindsight is always twenty twenty, and you yeah. always figure out a reason why something happens. And I think one of the main reasons why she called me twice, because it was inevitable that I had to take some of what I learned and pass it on. I couldn't just keep it for myself. I'm not a selfish person by nature. So why would I look at this any different? So when she called again, I was like, you know what? Why not? Why not go and teach? So eventually I started off as a uh, session supervisor, which is basically, I wouldn't say babysitting, but it was basically just making sure that the kids don't blow anything up when they have studio sessions during the weekend. <laughs> All right, right on, right on. <laughs> so, I su- so I supply the mics, you know, uh, help them tear down, help them set up. I do not engineer any of their sessions, but if they need advice, you know, I go to them and, you know, offer them some advice. And that kind of got me into the whole teacher-student relationship as far as how to give information and how to convey it in a way that they'll understand and be able to pick it up. And again, you know, that itch kind of scratched enough to where, unfortunately, one of our instructors left, and that opened the door for me to teach full-time So now we're in about 2010 when I actually started picking up and teaching full time. So now I'm teaching audio engineering classes. And in December of that year, I actually was awarded instructor of the year. 
Awesome. Which was Congratulations. like, thank you. It just kind of like threw me off. Like, huh? Really? You get an email from my boss. Like, are you coming to the Christmas party? I'm like, uh, no, there's no reason for me to. And she's like, I don't want you to tell anybody this, but you have been awarded instructor of the year. So I think you should show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been bad if you didn't show up. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm just trying to be incognito. I knew they was going to announce my name, but I had to act surprised. Of course, the people who were there were surprised. You know, first year in, of instruction and you get instructor of the year, like whose ass did you kiss? But no, it was just I think I had a knack for being able to relate to students by being a student, a former student that now becomes an instructor that became a teacher so close within that time frame. I had a better relationship with the students that were coming in because I knew exactly what they were going through. I went literally through the same exact process. That makes complete sense. And that made it very relatable. And I think that's what got me the ability to receive that award, just because I came in and it was guns blazing and they loved it. And I've been teaching there for now. Uh, in January will be my 11th year. And you know, there, of course, you have your good days and your bad days, but never will I take for granted the ability to be able to teach what I know and see it come to fruition in a project that a student does. Or eventually, if a student goes on to be a successful uh, producer, engineer, artist or whatnot, and to think of myself having a little nugget, just a little nugget of their success makes me feel proud that I'm in the position that I'm in. So that's why I continue to do it. That's great. And you don't seem to be one just to settle for one role, uh, going from uh, working in the traffic department at radio station to producer to engineer teaching. You've got something new on the horizon. You just recently got into composing soundtracks for movies. Is that right? Yes. So one of my biggest, and I don't know, I probably have a bad skin or something because I'm continually trying to find these itches to scratch. One of my biggest itches was being able to do orchestral work. I'm a big cartoon nut. And when I was a kid, watching Bugs Bunny or watching Tom and Jerry or watching a lot of those cartoons. Of course, a lot of them have orchestral elements into it, if not actual orchestral pieces. You know, yeah. one of my one of my favorite cartoons is when Bugs Bunny is performing Beethoven on the piano and he's trying to get to this damn mouse, you know. <laughs> and that kind of brought me into, well, why not take a stab at that? You know, of course, I mean, the technology is available. Um, you have a good rapport. You know, you're I mean, you're musically inclined. The only thing you would have to figure out is how to, you know, you, you probably have to go back to the drawing board in theory or something like that. But I think you should be able to do it. So I say about you know, a little over a year plus ago, um, 
I just say, you know what? Screw it. Let's let's do it. And I actually started to try to do some orchestral pieces. Now, uh, of course, I had no orchestral background. So one of the things I like to do is I did a lot of covers. So if you go to my YouTube channel, Eddie Bauer Music, for those who want to know, um, I got a lot of orchestral covers from uh, the theme from Batman, the 1989 theme uh, composed by Danny Elfman to the Predator theme composed by Alan Silvestri, to the Inception theme composed by Hans Zimmer. And don't you have Indiana Jones too? Yes, I have that on my SoundCloud, Eddie Bauer Music on SoundCloud. You can check that out. And I just started to try to kind of feel what composers and how their development of a score would take place. And by doing those covers, I started to get into trying to do my own work and, you know, trying to infuse some of those same philosophies and concepts into my own, in my own music. And I started to compose some originals. Um, a couple of them eh, were, you know, amateurish sounding. A couple of them were almost to the point of being epic. So I've been, you know, trying to get into the professional ranks of composing. Um, I just recently put out an audition for uh, Deadpool 2. Um, I did that a couple of months ago. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. They were actually looking for a new director during the time. I think they already found them. Um, so they're now probably in the pre-production stage, wow. which is very important because that's usually when they actually start looking for the composer. Jerky XL was the guy who did the first score for the first Deadpool movie. And you know how busy he is. He just done Wonder Woman. I think he's doing Justice League with Hans Zimmer, so he wasn't able yeah. to do it. So that kind of opened the door um, for uh, composers to try to audition um, for Deadpool 2. So I put my name in the pool and I actually uh, submitted a reel. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that. That would be awesome to get in on that. Oh, that would be terrific out of the gate. Um, and um, just recently here, I've actually uh, have some friends of mine who are composers as well, Abraham Castaneda and Keani Boyton, good friends of mine. Um, I've known Keani for almost a year now. Abraham, I just met a couple of months ago. I'm JD, JD Aguilar, who's a Grammy-nominated producer in his own right, um, also a Grammy-nominated composer and conductor. So all of us are getting together, and we're working on Dragon Ball Z, Really? Like of hope, yes. Is this going to be a movie or? Basically, it's a live rendition of Dragon Ball Z. Wow. I, yes. The concept of seeing that live could be interesting. <laughs> well, if you if you want to check out the concept, go on YouTube. Uh, the YouTube channel is at Robot Underdog 2 and look at the first Light of Hope episode of Dragon Ball Z. It has... The, the pilot has over 24 million views on YouTube. Wow. Yeah. That, so that, That's impressive. That This by far is the biggest project I've ever worked on. This, the scale as far as the amount of publicity and attention that it will get is tremendous. 
there's no way I could have passed that up. And long story short on how I got this opportunity, um, back in June, my friend J.D. and Kiani, uh, my friend J.D. came to the idea that, hey, I heard some of your composing work. He was the one that actually got me the audition to the Deadpool uh, for the composing gig for Deadpool. He was yeah. the one that actually put my name into the kitty. So he was like, well, Grammy U wants me to do a seminar in Dallas at Dallas Baptist University in July. And I was figuring instead of doing a seminar, why not do a recording session or two? I was like, OK, sounds like a good idea. But I want you to help me compose it, and I will give you the opportunity to conduct it. Now, keep in mind, I'm still a newbie in composing, and yeah. I've never conducted anything. So it's like now I'm opening Pandora's box <laughs> all in one session. So I've never written sheet music before, so this was a new venture for me. I've never really transposed sheet music before, as in taking a song and literally breaking it down into various string parts. Keep in mind that a lot of my production work has been done basically on a computer using MIDI. Now I am trying to actually write music for other musicians to perform. It was kind of daunting for yeah. me to think about it. But once I got my head wrapped around it, and of course, with the help of my friend J.D., who's tremendously gifted and talented as far as his ear, um, we were able to come up with a very good rendition of a Christmas song called Mary Did You Know. It has been performed on countless occasions by various artists. One of my favorite renditions was done by the Pentatonics. So I essentially took their acapella style yeah. And basically morphed it into a four-part string arrangement with piano accompaniment. And we actually did the recording at DBU in July. It was a tremendous feeling of accomplishment actually seeing something that I literally wrote and actually have a musician be able to play it. It's one thing to actually write it. It's another thing to hear the musician actually play it. Yes. And that's it again. That was the like the goosebumps, the adrenaline rush that I really just needed to kind of, OK, I think I can make a little bit of headway in this composing and conducting thing. Definitely, man. Soon as I got back from Dallas, I met Abraham and he was telling me about Dragon Ball Z and how he wanted me and Keanu and JD to help them do part two. And now we're like in crunch deadline time. Don't know when the uh, actual uh, completion of the film is gonna be, but they did give us around maybe the end of October to get these scores done. So as far as my composing sort of venture, I think right now where you guys are about to witness the, the birth of Eddie Bauer, I like to call myself the ghetto composer. <laughs> right you know? on, man. Sounds sounds like you got a lot uh lot in the making right there from the Deadpool 2, Dragon Ball Z and writing and conducting your first orchestra piece. That's 
quite a lot to get accomplished in just over a year. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I could not have done this without some of the great, you know, people that I've met this last decade plus that I've been out here in uh, in L.A. and working. And, you know, it. I realized that the industry is just more than the people that are in it. It can get daunting when you look at, you know, the hours that you have to work and, you know, the projects and the deadlines that you have to, you know, try to make. But when you start meeting the people, uh, it kind of brings a sense of calm knowing that, hey, these guys are going through the same thing you're going through. And look at what they're producing. Look at the fruit that they're bringing forth. So as long as you can relate to that, you should be okay. And, you know, I've met so many great people who are now considered my friends, not just colleagues. Yeah. And I think every one of them has an impact on how my career moves forward. And I can I, I feel a responsibility almost to not let them down. So I got to give it max effort as uh, Deadpool would say, maximum effort. So <laughs> let's give it maximum effort and see where the chips may fall. And uh, I would have never thought that within a year's time I will be working on, you know, I haven't seen Dragon Ball Z in years. I know about Super Saiyan. I know about Goku you know, so me knowing that and knowing how many people actually are fanatics yeah. of Dragon Ball Z kind of brings the realism to what I do, which is I'm in the entertainment business and my job is to provide entertainment to the public. And one of the ways I do it is by producing and composing music. And what better joy to have then to be able to do that as a living to feed your family and to provide for your family and to kind of, you know, make a difference in somebody else's life, which at the end of the day, to me, that is more than any amount of financing can give me is knowing that somebody actually enjoyed something that I worked on. Definitely, man. So uh, what advice would you give to somebody who is looking to get started out in the industry so they can be able to accomplish all the things that you have or at least get started on the path? Well, I think one of the main things I had to learn is to remain humble because things are not always going to go your way. Um, you know, it, it's all right to be confident. It's not okay to be cocky. Uh, a lot of people in this industry, they don't like cockiness. They love to see confidence. But when you start getting cocky uh, and start getting full of yourself, you're not able to learn anything. You know, your ears kind of go into death mode when you're cocky. But when you're confident, you're always aware of, oh, well, this can trip me up if I'm not careful. Yeah, or This definitely. can trip me up if I'm not diligent. And I think that's one of the biggest things that, you know, I tell my students this all the time. Your humbleness would dictate how far you get in this career. Your talent can only take you so far, but it's really your humbleness that's going to give you longevity because the people that you meet, they expect humbleness. You know, again, we're in an entertainment business, so we're not the client. The client is out there purchasing our albums or going to see our movies that we composed in. 
So remain humble and always look to that. And I think you will have better success uh, in whatever discipline that you go in into the industry. Uh, Humbleness is, I think, my number one key in, you know, staying engaged as long as I have been. Awesome, man. That is uh, great advice right there. Plain and simple, nobody likes to work with a dick. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And trust me, some of the people I work with can be dicks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know. And and eventually, you got to understand that, hey, you know, you're not always going to get paid. You're not always going to get that that, that supreme gig that you've been, you know, busting your ass for hours in the rehearsal hall and, you know, writing all these charts and whatnot. You know, I, you know, I had a gig that I lost earlier that could easily pay me, you know, enough to pay my rent for four months and I didn't get it. Yeah, I was disappointed, but you know what? If I let that disappointment shut me down, then it, it defeats the purpose of why I started in the first place. Awesome. That's that's also good to know too, because being able to work through that, we'll we'll get we'll touch on that in a little bit here. Okay. So, because that kind of plays into my final question, uh, we'll we'll come on back to that. But right now, how do you promote yourself? Well, one of the things that I like to do on social media uh, is, you know, any chance that I get to try to, you know. Uh, plaster something on YouTube as far as some of my production work, whether it be a cover or uh, I actually have uh, about to start a new series called Behind the Glass, which goes into the inner workings of uh, composing, conducting, engineering and production work. I'll plaster it on YouTube. So for those of you who don't have my YouTube channel, Eddie Bauer Music, we'll, you know, we'll start to be uh, posting more content. So uh, one of the things I have to learn now is I have to be more driven in technology and social media. I'm not really a social media light, but, you know, <laughs> I know that I know that is the way to kind of get, you know, attention to what you're trying to do. So my YouTube channel, of course, uh, you know, I'm always on Facebook. Um, I'm always on IG. So my handles are all the same, Eddie Bauer Music. As far as what I do personally, I think a lot of my promotion and marketing is related to what I do at MI, which is an instructor of music. So I tend to use that a lot to kind of help promote myself. Okay. It, has always, it has always been a good engine to drive my promotion material. When people hear that I am an instructor at a world-renowned music school, and that kind of brings attention and a little bit of a little bit of credibility and weight to what I do, and so I use that a lot personally. Um, of course, a lot of my material that I, you know, let them listen to as far as my discography. I can always, you know, give that to them on a personal note as well. And so that's how that's kind of what I do to use and promote the market myself. And of course, as things start rolling along, that's what I'm going to be focused on more and more. And of course, your uh, your program is helping me to promote, too. So I like to thank you, Static, for that. Of course, man. This has been a very fun conversation. I've learned a little bit about the uh, production world as well that I didn't necessarily know. So I enjoy learning new things. And that's part of the reason why I do this show. (laughs) Nice, nice. So, uh, (laughs) you know, stay curious, right? Right. 
Now, Eddie, what do you want people to take away from your performance or remember about the music you produce or compose? Like, what feeling do you want them to take away? For me, and, you know, usually, especially with film composing, the mood is dictated by what you see on screen. But I think the approach, no matter what mood it is, for me, it's the same. And that is, I want people to look at the world as I would see it. Okay. You know, so instead of you approaching me and looking at me through your eyes, approach me, but now look at yourself through my eyes. And what I look at, and what I look at the world as is this whole mosaic of one big ass soap opera almost. And everything that we do has an undercurrent to it, whether it be a thought, an effect, or a piece of music. And what I try to do is I try to convey a lot of what I see in the world and a lot to what I do in the industry, whether it be my ears hear sound a certain way, so that's what you hear in my engineering, or my brain looks at a situation a different way, and that's what you hear in my production and composing. Very cool. I really like the look at yourself through my eyes line right there. It kind of gave me a very kind of cool visual in my head as you said it. (laughs) Nice, nice. Um, One of my scores I actually did, um, you'll be able to find it on SoundCloud. It's actually called Deep in the Iris, and it's actually more... And one of the uh, descriptions I use for it is looking at the world through my eyes. And it's a very, it has a lot of movement. It gets, you know, triumphant. It gets sad. It gets melancholy. It has all of these different, you know, almost different types of emotions that play against each other. And believe it or not, I go through that on a daily basis. So when I walk around and literally go to work, you know, I have so many thoughts in my head and it usually translates into my music. And when you hear it, hopefully you'll be imagining yourself riding down the car and kind of thinking the same thing I was thinking. You're like, wow, I can see where he got that thought from, you know, and hopefully that can make me relate to my audience a little bit better. At the end of the day, that's what I want. Yeah, that's really cool. That is actually the first piece that uh, you sent me to check out. And I was thinking to myself, like, yes, I could see this as a movie soundtrack or at least in some dramatic scene and captures that certain emotion that would go well with a movie. I look forward to hearing what you have coming up with Dragon Ball Z. And hopefully I get to hear what you have for Deadpool. Yeah, Deadpool is, like I said, fingers crossed only because, you know, you're talking about a multi-million dollar budget uh a lot of yeah marvel you know you got ryan reynolds probably going to be executive producer again so you know he's every, everything that he does has got to have his niche on it with the whole dragon ball z situation the funny thing is it is all privately funded wow. and for that to happen and for it to get the response it got 
it allows us to have the freedom to really go at these scenes. And I haven't really actually started to uh, – my guy Abraham just sent me all of the director's cuts via Dropbox, so I got to check them out after we do our interview tonight. And I can only imagine some of the thought processes that's going to go through my head when I look at these scenes because I, ha- I heard – what Abraham did on the first Light of Hope uh, edition of Dragon Ball Z. And the guy is amazing. I actually get inspired when I listen to other people's work. It inspires me as well. And I hopefully my work would do the same for them. So when I listen to him and then to, you know, read his text messages about how excited he is to work with, with me and, you know, to, you know, I, I you know, I, I was actually asking him, you know, is there any way I can, you know, give credibility or actually start talking about the Dragon Ball Z project? I know it's not. He's like, dude, go ahead. I would rather them hear it from you than from me. <laughs> and again, that kind of, you know, kind of plays into kind of what my my career has been all about is I, I don't look at myself as a leader, but other people do. And I always have to take that in the back of my head and conduct myself accordingly. And I appreciate that. And it, and again, it humbles me to where I just really want to get in and work and put my best foot forward. And so I cannot wait until everything is done. And Static, you and a lot of your listeners are going to be the first people to hear uh, what's going to be coming up within the next few months with uh, Dragon Ball Z. That's awesome, man. You will have to keep me posted on that and Deadpool as well. I have a couple more questions for you before we get out of here. And you, okay. I know you've had a lot of highlights in your career because we've talked about quite a few of them here. But what is a highlight from your career that uh, you'd like to share with the uncontained audience? I think one of the biggest highlights of my career actually happened this year when I conducted my first uh, orchestral ensemble. Again, one of the whole caveats about me doing orchestral work is a lot of it has been done in a computer. So all of the parts I play, everything from the brass to the woodwinds to the strings to the percussion, everything was performed by me. So I'm trying to do what normally 60 to 80 musicians would do with precision, with no problem. Yeah. So to actually go from what Beethoven or Mahler or Bertok or Mozart or any of the great composers looking up to, you know, John Williams and Alison Vestry and Hans Zimmer and, you know, some of these guys that will literally go pick up a pencil, grab a tablet of sheet music, and actually start writing notation. To actually do that and to then hear musicians play what you wrote, but not only that, to get in front of those musicians and command attention with a baton, again, just of a sense of euphoria and accomplishment that I don't think I can get from any other part of the industry. You know, I think I've performed, I've produced, I've engineered, 
but never have I really put myself in that, you know, almost untouched area of composing yeah. and conducting because that's a that's a totally different discipline and it's a totally different philosophy that you have to have to do something like that. And to me, those guys are almost I don't want to call them gods, but they're the pinnacle of what every musician wants to be. You know, when you're a guy going to med school, at first you become an intern and then you become a nurse. Eventually you want to become a, a, a doctor or a surgeon or that's the pinnacle of your profession. You know, when you're a teacher, the pinnacle of your profession is being a professor. So to me, being a conductor slash composer is almost reaching the pinnacle of my profession. And now I just want to harness it and learn everything I can about it and just really get good at it. And I know that's going to take time, but to now actually have projects where I can actually explore that opportunity, it, it just makes it so much more realistic and tangible that now I, I can, you know, without any fear, just go ahead and attack it. Awesome, man. I, I love that uh, you just keep on pushing yourself to to new levels. Like, as I mentioned before, you went from the production to uh, engineering and now to this and keep on learning new things and picking up new skills. So that I admire and and I hope you continue to do so. I have one more question for you, Eddie. But before I get to the final question, would you uh, tell people where they can find you on the Internet and where they can find your work? Absolutely. Okay. So for those of you who would like to either listen or check out any of my material, whether it be original material or covers that I've done, uh, you can check me out on YouTube, uh, handle Eddie Bauer Music. You can also check out my Instagram with the same handle, Eddie Bauer Music. Go on SoundCloud, Eddie Bauer Music to check out a lot of my original material. And you can always find me on Facebook, Edward Towner. Unfortunately, I don't have an Eddie Bauer music page yet, but that is that coming. Yes, that is coming. So uh, for all of you guys that want to check out anything, please go to that. You can also go to mi.edu and you can look at my profile, check out a lot of the stuff that I've done. And also uh, a lot of the curriculum that I teach in my actually trying to come up with a musical composition class within the next couple of months. All of those handles I gave you, uh, Eddie Bauer Music at Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, on SoundCloud, and Edward Towner on Facebook. All right, perfect. I will uh, put those all in the show notes. Now it's uh, time for the final question, the title question of the show. Eddie Bauer? How do you live uncontained? Hmm. I think the best way for me to answer that is no fear. Okay. Like literally they actually make a shirt called no fear. And as much as I read that, and of course I listen to a whole lot of successful people talking about the ability to go at everything without fear and I've always wanted to figure out what is that fear factor? Is it the fear of failure? Is it the fear of ridicule or persecution or do get you a real job, you know, <laughs> go ahead and just, you know, work a regular nine to five so you can support your family. You know, I mean, there was a point where we were homeless 
There was a point where I've lost relatives, you know. Uh, there was a point in time where, you know, nobody wanted to deal with me as far as working in the industry. They thought, you know, my time had passed. I'm 42 years old, you know, and I feel like now I'm just reaching my peak. And the reason I think that I have been able to be in the industry for over 18 years and do what I've done is the fact that I have no fear. I don't give a damn what anybody says about anything that I do except for the people who I care about. And to me, that is my family, those are my colleagues, and that is my audience. And the audience, they know who they are. And as long as those three are satisfied to the point where I can continue, I think that's kind of how I define a contain. Like, no fear. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Hell yeah. The dude. fact that I'm doing it as a profession is just icing on the cake. You know, I don't never consider this a hobby. Ever. It has always been a lifestyle for me. So... I don't have any retribution or fear of what goes on based on my lifestyle as far as working in the industry. I'm going to continue to do that because I know at the end of the day, the universe is going to align itself where my door is going to open up and I'm going to seize that opportunity because I know I have put everything I have into it to become ready for that opportunity. And with everything that's been going on recently, it kind of hit home. Yeah. Like, pursue what you need to pursue, but do it without fear of failure. Because, I mean, look at how many times you failed before you got to this point. So why should you be afraid of failure now? Just keep pushing. And I think that is, for me, the definition of an uncontained is no fear. That is uh, just about as perfect definition as I have heard. Thank you for joining me, Eddie, and talking music with me, talking the business of the industry with me, and uh, what keeps you motivated. I really do look forward to seeing what you have coming up in the uh, composing realm of things. So I have one final thing for you to do before we get out of here. Eddie Bauer, will you do me the honor of signing off the show today? No problem, Static. I really appreciate you having me on. It is an awesome thing that you're doing. You keep up the good work, my brother. This is Eddie Bauer, and I live uncontained. And that does it for another episode of Uncontained. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Eddie Bauer for coming on and talking to me. That would be really sweet if he gets that uh, Deadpool uh, job composing the soundtrack for that i am looking forward to checking out the new dragon ball z movie that he's working on and i will keep you up to date and posted on to when that is coming out thanks again for listening and until next time live uncontained <laughs>